Welcome to EY's Next Wave Banking in Asia-Pacific podcast. I'm Andrew Gilder, your host and EY's Asia-Pacific Banking Capital Markets Sector Leader. In this series, we will feature insights and analysis on topics impacting the Asia-Pacific banking sector as it reinvents itself to be leaner, more agile, and customer-centric than ever. The C-suite, in particular the Chief People Officer or Chief Human Resources Officer, are faced with changing generations in the workplace, expansion of technology and digital collaboration tools, the increasing importance of ESG and DEI, as well as an increasing skill shortage coupled with inflation and recessionary risks. In this episode, we explore why and how should banks in Asia-Pacific be considering a human-centric approach to building a future-ready workforce with a culture that supports continuous growth and evolution. My special guests today are seated here with me in the EY Singapore office. First, Lee Hui Boon, Head of Group Human Resources at OCBC Bank, and Sumi D, Partner, People Advisory Services at EY. Hello, Hui Boon and Sumi. Thank you for joining me here today. Thank you for having me, Andrew. And hello to our listeners. I'm really excited and looking forward to this conversation. Well, let's get stuck into it then. In the last few years, work has been reimagined by employees and employers, but their visions don't necessarily always align. For example, in the latest EY Work Reimagined survey, which was done in 2022, both sides see flexibility and hybrid work as the new normal. However, if you dig into the details a little bit further, it does reveal some divisions. The COVID-19 pandemic, rising inflation, the great resignation in 2021-22, and calls for commitment and action on ESG issues are further reshaping this workforce terrain. In the financial services sector, the younger generations are perhaps more inclined to start their careers in fintechs or neobanks or even big tech companies. My kids certainly have told me that they don't want to either be accountants or bankers. So my first question to both of you is how should banks in Asia Pacific be reimagining the future of work as well as the bank employee value proposition in order to compete for talent acquisition? And of course, subsequently talent retention. Can we start with you, Hui Boon? So Andrew, I'd like to offer your kids an internship with OCBC. We hope to change their views of not wanting to be bankers. When we think about future of work, I think about it in three areas. The first area being workforce, second area being workplace, and the third area being nature of work. So if we think about the workforce, you would see that the broad demographic trends are changing, the trends of an aging population So I think increasingly we have to start to think about how we can think about jobs and roles differently. And with the volatility and the uncertainty we're seeing in the workplace, we expect that roles that we will not foresee now or we don't expect to understand now will become more and more prevalent in future. So we are working towards a skills workplace unlike the past where tenure and domain expertise is important. And we think about the workplace, leveraging skills, leveraging data and AI to inform decision-making is becoming increasingly important. It's no longer just focused on process, but it's also looking at insights and analytics to drive a lot of the planning and looking forward into the future. And then finally, when you think about work, I think these days, particularly the Gen Zs, they think about not just a career, they think about experiences and they think about taking on purpose-led work. So for us, when I think about how should we position our employee 
value proposition, we think along these three lines. And Sumi, anything to add? I must go back to the days when we started this campaign early this year. Do my kids really want to work in the bank? And I asked my two young kids, do they want to work in a bank? The answer was, it depends. So there was a maybe, there's no guarantee. And what I see are a couple of research insights that have come out. The Work Reimagined Survey in 22 talked about 46% of our employees in the banking and capital markets were ready to say that we intend to leave in the next 12 months. So any inaction towards some of those drivers are going to lead to that maybe shifting towards the no. So what can we do today? And there were quite a few insightful suggestions from my boys. And one of them was clearly the diversity and inclusion. So I'm really glad you have a women in banking panel today, Andrew. It reflects that this is not just for the same gender, the same race or the same kind of people there is space for diversity of thought. So that seems to be one. The other pieces are learning everywhere. They're really excited when they move and they see OCBC campus. It comes to them as learning is everywhere. It's a place where I can go and just like I can snack anything, I can play a game and I can do and learn and learn and do. So learning everywhere is pretty important to them. The other piece is the employee experiences and a sense of belonging. Is this a fun place? Do you get excited to work there? So how do you bring up that sense of belonging? The last part is purpose-led. You did talk about the societal value. What good we do. And banks actually does a lot, whether it's on the ESG side of things, the ESG investments, the shaping the environment, climate change agenda. But how do we put that front of our Gen Zs and the future generation is something that if we do better, the maybe will turn to a yes. Maybe I should get you to talk to my kids. Let's turn to something I like to incorporate into all of these discussions, which is customer experience. Because I think in banking, as in other sectors as well, customer experience is constantly changing. So in order for banks to thrive in an environment of those evolving customer expectations with an expanding set of technologies and business model change and so forth, the banking workforce also needs to learn and adapt new skills. So what do you think are those skills of today and tomorrow that banks have not traditionally had? And what is the strategy to kind of acquire or develop those skills and capabilities? Maybe, Sumi, do you want to start on this one? Sure. We wouldn't spoke about that skills-led workforce transformation, and that's the skills are the new fuel. And when we look at EY Skills Foundry, for example, is one of the platforms that we are designing and developing, and it's got three parts to it. The first part is all about mapping the skills blueprint. Today, we know how many people we have in different roles, but we don't always know what skill sets they have. And that's the starting of our journey. How do we map skill sets, not just job families and job architecture? The second part to the map is really develop those skill sets of the future, the hot skills. And whether it's the digital mindset, the digital skill sets, the adaptable mindset, as well as sustainability skills, green skills different types of skills which are important for the future. That's the develop track. And the last track is really about the mobility. So how do we track and ensure that the career is not one vertical track, but it's a career jungle and people are able to develop skills as they move from one place to another. So the talent marketplace is the third piece of that map, develop, move. So three parts to that strategy, but we are trying to get there. Today, most of these three functions happen in a very role-specific way, and we are trying to drive more towards the skills. 
And Hui Boon, how does OCBC think about that skills transformation, particularly in Singapore and the ASEAN region, which is a very dynamic environment? Really to pick on the point that Sumi has made earlier, I think that the shift towards a skills-based learning and really thinking about what are the roles of the future is really important. So I think when we reflect on how our training and our learning has changed over the course of the past few years, we've started to shift from a focus on really sort of core technical competencies to really talking about skills-based competencies. So skills like learning agility, skills like data literacy, managing ambiguity, these are becoming increasingly important. And so what we have done since 2018 was to put together what we call a future smart program, where we start to put equal emphasis on learning these skills alongside the hard soft technical skills. We've committed about 15 million and we've put together 10,000 programs along pillars of customer centricity, managing the future of work, and data literacy, learning about data and understanding data. So that more and more of our people start to pick up these skills alongside the hard skills in this era of what I call the T-shaped skills. And what we have seen is we have seen close to more than 500,000 completions since 2018. From my perspective, a very encouraging and impressive set of completions, over 10,000 programs. And then when we start to think about, okay, then how would we design these programs since they are not really core technical programs? In our learning blueprint, we focus on four design principles. Principles that talks about the community learning as a community, that talks about our OCBC campus as a way or just as a representation of learning sciences and different learning methods, not necessarily housed in a physical campus. We think about learning being empowered, so anchored by leadership. That's not just about being leaders, being positive examples, but also as an individual, how we are self-empowered to learn. And finally, learning should be available by default. It is not police, it should not be enforced. So that's how we think about learning in general. But I think in the course of it, we've also started to rethink internships. And that's why I invited your kids to sign up. Because we think about internships less as watching, modeling. We think about really experiencing. And that's starting to pivot internships to what I call apprenticeship. We've already rolled that out with our entrepreneurship program. We've just rolled out a one-year tech internship with uh, one of the Neon Polytechnic, if it got amazing responses because the experience to really build something even while doing an internship, it's amazing. And it's really bonded the team, not just the leadership team around the interns, but also the interns themselves, they found meaning and purpose to what they are doing in the cost of an intern. And finally, I would say that in thinking about a different operating environment, I think what we also would like to do is to build the sector, the community and the industry that's for the Singapore workforce. We believe that if we put, we start to change through these internships and apprenticeships, start to change the nature of how our undergrads are involved in the changing and the evolution of work, we will start to build at a much earlier stage, a pipeline of people and talent that are equipped to handle what I would say an increasingly volatile and uncertain world. Yeah, it sounds like really engaging the juniors in the development and the evolution. 
And in your response there, you mentioned leadership a couple of times. So let's turn to that because I think that's an important element of this. And you also mentioned purpose earlier on, which is also driven from the leadership. So how can banks reimagine their leadership, the people and the culture to future-proof talent and the transformation efforts for, say, the next 10 years versus that traditional approach that we've taken over the last 10 years in banking? I think one of the ways to do that, and we have been increasingly focusing on it, is really about mobility. So how can we think about career pathways in a very different way, similar to what Sumi mentioned? It really not just a vertical progression, but really start to move people into roles that are adjacent to the existing areas so that we have people an opportunity to connect the dots. If you think about the disruptions that we see in banking today, a lot of the disruptors are able to make a dent only because they have been operating at the adjacent areas and reinterpreted their skills or the value by trying to move the adjacent areas and connecting it with the core. So maybe let me give you an experience. We think about we are a banking institution, but we are also very focused on tech and experience. And we think if we bring all this together for an employee, what would that mean? And so what we did was we put together an app for employees so that the employees have an ability to use the app to transact, whether that's to look at the leave balance, to look at their schedule, to book a meeting room. And we found that this is really by operating and looking at tech that we have brought to our customers and then harnessing that to connect the dots and bring a different employee experience for us and for our people. And I thought that really is very important. Mobility is one but it's also about connecting the dots and then harnessing that to bring value to the bigger group. And the second big group I would think about really is then about really prioritizing well-being. I'm very, very pleased and proud to say that OCBC was recently named the winner of the Wellbeing Innovation Award by WorkWell Leaders. And that's really because we think that really taking care of employees and really looking after them is no longer about your straightforward benefits. It's really thinking about the total and entire well-being. And it's not just about themselves. It's also about how to interact with colleagues. So I would say a social well-being, the psychological well-being, the ability to speak up, the financial well-being, and also the well-being with the family. And so if we bring all this together, really being able to prioritize well-being alongside all the other things about mobility and about connecting the dots, I believe that really is what I think is important to future-proof our workforce. And Sumi, do you want to just add a couple of comments on leadership? I understand EY has done some research in this area and talks about some six leadership drivers. Thanks, Andrew. What Huiwun was saying is really bringing to life those six drivers, but I'm going to spend a bit of time on just those six. We did a research with the University of Oxford, said Business School, and two-thirds of those we surveyed they said that there was at least one underperforming transformation that they experienced. So why do these things go wrong? And the six drivers, based on predictive analytics, we realized if you focus on these, the successful outcome will be 2.6 times higher. What are those? The six drivers are inspire. It's all about the purposeful vision, starting with the why. Why are we moving the needle? What is it for? The second one is all about leading the adaptable leader who emphasizes the we, not the me. Care, 
you talked a lot about the care, the psychological safety, the listening with empathy and being holistically involved in their well-being. That's beautiful. The fourth one is all about the empowerment, the disciplined freedom to experiment and have a mindset of fail fast. Fifth is, of course, collaborate, but that comes with radical interdependence and co-creating that new ways of working. And finally, build, which is all about purposeful tech, to foster that digital mindset and skill set. And you talked about the app. It's all about that empowerment and building in a very purposeful way and bringing technology to that intersection. So, so far we've talked about reimagining work and leadership and upskilling, but a lot of this will result or will require a bit of an HR transformation journey. And our experience with transformation is that it's not easy to achieve and it doesn't always go smoothly. So, Hui Boon, can I turn to you and spotlight on your experience so far to share a little bit about your HR transformation journey at, at OCBC that you've been through in the last couple of years. And what have you learned from that? What are your key challenges that you've experienced and the learnings that you've taken from that? So to be honest, I think OCBC has only started the transformation journey two years back. So we are very early days in this transformation effort. We spent a good part in the beginning trying to think about what is our North Star what is the underlying purpose and what is the motivation and the problem and the pain points we want to solve through this transformation. So we've gotten maybe into the first leg of this transformation. So we are starting to be making recommendations and thinking about what the possibility of looking at a different operating model could be. But I think what has been quite evident to me is that transformation is really fraught with challenges and that the people that are impacted feel a strong sense of uncertainty. Even if they were in the first place, the ones that were really, really motivated and they really felt that this was the right way to go. But in the process, I think people are uncertain. People do feel afraid of what the change could be and how it would impact them. So what we have tried to do is to really open up the communications around this change. We've really put more information out there. Every step of the way, we try and communicate. From my perspective, more is better than less. And we just consistently start to put information on what we are thinking about, what are the potential transitions and what are considerations around that change so that people trust the intent of that change. And in so doing, in putting more information, we also try and gender the trust and the faith that whatever the outcome may be, their interest will be looked after and that the transition will be one that they feel that they can cope with. But having said that, one of the insights that came to me in the course of this transformation journey has also been that while we can think about in an ideal way how the operating model could look like, how the technology and the solution to enable the operating model could look like, I think that the best or ideal model is really one that reflects the majority of the organization and one that reflects the existing skill sets and competencies of the people. I think there is really very little point for us to make a giant leap to an ideal state when the organization itself is not prepared. So I think we are starting to work out, okay, what is the intermediate step? that will allow us to get to where we want to be eventually. But if we can be pragmatic 
and realistic about the steps to allow us to start to make that transition and progression there. I think that would really start to make our transition efforts successful and sustainable. Let's shift the conversation towards employee experience. And you've already touched on a lot of this, actually, talking about the OCBC campus and the app that you've developed and really sounds like you're making some good strides on employee experience. But there's another element that we want to dive into, which is around diversity, equity and inclusion, or DE&I, as it's often referred to. I guess most large banks, yourself included, employ thousands of people across the region, particularly this region is very diverse. And that group of people bring diverse perspectives, experience, knowledge, and also resources. So I'm interested to learn from both of you on how banks should be thinking about creating and maintaining that culture of diversity and inclusiveness. So perhaps to continue on the momentum from your last response, Weeboon, can we hear from you first on how DEI can help influence the employer brand? And in your case of OCBC, how does DEI impact the ability or effectiveness of your execution? So what does it actually bring in terms of execution, not just it's the right thing to do, but it's also got benefits in doing it? When we think about DEI, we don't think about it separately as initiative that we do. In fact, I would say that DE and I or inclusion is very much worked into OCBC's purpose. Our purpose is to help individuals and businesses across communities achieve their aspirations by offering them innovative financial services that meet their needs. So if in our very purpose of who OCBC are, DE and I is already embedded and it's also then reflected in our strategy. We are a bank, and so I think you're absolutely right. We are in a privileged position. We have access to resources. We're in a position that we understand what inclusion is all about. And when we think about inclusion, well, inclusion has for us financial inclusion, and this is in the communities that we work in. Uh, When we think about inclusion, we think about how we can start to bring people without access to financial services into the system. And we've done that with our, all the work that we're doing on digital adoption, on rolling out and harnessing digital banking services in order to allow people who had in the past not been able to access them because in the past provision of banking services was location-based. If you are not having a branch there, you cannot access banking services. So with digital services, we have been able to bring financial inclusion to a much bigger group. We do that not just for individuals, but also for businesses, not just in Singapore, but in also in our key markets like Indonesia, where inclusion is definitely a much bigger area or subject than in Singapore. And we think about inclusion also in a slightly different way. How can we give skills and tools and awareness to our young so that we start to build them with financial literacy at a young age and we give them a way to understand what financial planning, financial awareness is at a very young age. So we conduct programs involving children where we start, our volunteers will go and learn or teach them through play, through exercises that will allow them to understand the importance of financial planning. So I think that's how we think about D&I for us. But of course, it's not just about interacting with the community in such a way. We also think about how we can bring inclusion to our workforce. We are already starting to work, planning to work with gig workers 
so that we start to think about our workforce in a different way. How through job share, we can start to bring more and more people who had in the past been unable to hold a full-time job due to family commitments and bring them into our workplace by thinking and reimagining roles in a different way. How can we share roles? How can we start to build roles into the basic building blocks and those that can be done without being having to be physically in the office and those can be done remotely and offsite. So we are starting to work to look at our workforce and plan our workforce in a very different way. And of course, this is also in line with what we see the demographic trends are, that we need to start to build a tap the workforce from alternative, non-traditional sources so that we start to have diversity and start to be able to work in or start to respond and anticipate the changes in our workforce now rather than wait to the future. And Simi, any thoughts on even how we at EY here approach DEI or other banks in the region are considering DEI? Thank you, Andrew. I totally agree with Huibon that we are witnessing a fundamental shift in the way the diversity, equity, inclusion is being aligned more to move the needle on, say, the S of the ESG agenda, driving some of our UN SDG goals. And it's a lot more than just the diversity or a program. Our EY EVP is centered around building an inclusive workforce, and we say it's yours to build. And you will see a recent uh, belonging barometer that we ran in 22 with the APAC audiences. And what we noticed was any place which drives a higher feeling and a sense of belonging has higher productivity, it saves cost, and the people are three times more likely to stay with the current employer. With these insights, I'm going to talk about one example of a beautiful journey that EY has taken on the measurable impact. In 2016, EY started the neurodiversity journey, and we now have around more than 19 COEs, neurodiversity centers of excellence globally, and we have around 450 employees in these centers. We are currently working to expand also in the APAC and ASEAN countries. And recently, we were recognized with this Lighthouse Recognition Award by the World Economic Forum in 23 at the Davos in Switzerland. Now, what does this mean? It really tries to have that forward-thinking approach towards workforce, bringing in the untapped talent pool. And when we look at some of the skill building, we are going back to the ABCD skills, which are all the digital skills, the adaptable skills, the automation, the cybersecurity, the data. So you clearly see a shift towards a diverse and inclusive workforce and at the same time building of those digital and skill sets that of the future. So for companies to really drive transformation, they must bring the diverse ways of thinking to the table. DEI, I agree with Huibun, is not just a program or initiative. It's about making the business better by creating that better work and life experience for everyone, our employees, clients, communities. Let's turn our attention to, as an accountant, sometimes I deny my accounting past, but I always like to come back to measurement. So let's move on to how we measure transformation. And Huibun, let's start with you, given you've talked a lot about OCBC's HR transformation journey. What's your take on how banks ultimately measure the success of any talent transformation they take on? Thanks, Andrew. I absolutely agree with you. We must be able to measure any transformation effort. And and you're absolutely right. To me, I think the first metric that I would look at is transformation must deliver business results. I think that is the whole point of transformation. There is 
a set of business outcomes that we want to get to. And our role as HR is to work to enable and facilitate that business outcome. So my first measure that I would say is business results. But then on the other hand, I will also think about retention as one of the most visible measures of transformation. So our retention rates, what are the attrition rates and how fast we're able to start to bring people on board with vacancies opening up. And I think the other metrics that I always think about, it really is also about employee engagement. So what are employees saying about us? How engaged are they? Are they recommending us to their friends? And also then this feeds back to our ability to bring people in for vacancies. Are we getting people, our employees referring others? Are we getting a larger proportion of internal referrals in our in how we feel or where we feel our, our position? So those are the key metrics I would think about. Sumi, anything to add to that? I'm going to speak to our next wave strategy. We have those four measures and I find that quite holistic, very similar to what Huiwun was saying. One, the financial value, realizing that business case, the result. The client value is the next one, delivering exceptional client experiences in that reimagined future state. The third one is the employee value. How do we improve the employee's journey, their engagement, their retention, and constantly look at before and after measures? And finally, the societal value. How are we building that better working world in the geography, the community, or the environment that we are operating in? So as we close off today's podcast, I'll close with a question that we've posed at the end of each of the podcasts in this series. And it's around what piece of advice would you give to either a CEO or in this case, a CHRO listening to today's podcast? So we'll start with you, Sumi, and and then Huibun. It's the same message. There are kind of three parts to it. One, drive a purpose-led sustainable future. Two, enabled by technology data. And three, empowered by an inclusive workforce. I think my message to the CEO would be provide a strong message to the CHRO. I think it should be clear to everyone that HR is not just HR's business. I think it's everyone's business and it's important to rally around the effort. Banking is a people business. And if we do not invest in this single most important asset, I think that it would have been very challenging to deliver the outcomes that we want. So I would say, really give a strong mandate and the entire C-suite team must rally around the CHRO. What a great message to finish with. You can't transform the bank without transforming the workforce. So thank you both for sharing your experience and expertise on this critical topic, which helps enable banking transformation. So it's been a real pleasure to get both of your views, Huibun and Sumi. You've listened to the EY Next Wave Banking in Asia Pacific podcast. To learn more about EY, our people, and our latest thinking, visit us at ey.com forward slash banking. If you would like to have a further conversation on what you've just heard or learn more about joining our team at EY, please contact us via the details found in the description. If you like this episode, please leave a review to help us bring you more insightful and relevant content. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.